When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is going on, friends of the Rockney cast? For this episode, we're going to go back to the Ukraine war. And in particular, my recent weekend, weekend with my friends about their positions on the Ukraine war, because they all disagree with my assessment as to why or whether the United States should be supporting militarily Ukraine to the degree that it is. That is... Got together with four guys, three of them opposed my view, and I was kind of the lone dissenting voice, and I'll be glad to report to you that we are still friends, and I think we will still continue to get together. So why am I even focusing so much time on this particular topic? Because one, I think it's an important one. This is one that's been kind of been simmering in the background, um, but when it blows up, literally and figuratively, we're going to say, where did that come from? And why all of a sudden are we getting a call for troops? Why are we reinstating the draft? When did this happen? Well, to me, it's just sitting there in plain view, and this entire country seems to be asleep. Now, I candidly do disagree with my friend's position, which is they are, as far as I can tell, and I have not identified them to maintain their own privacy in case they don't want to be as famous as Rockney Cole of the Rockney cast with my tens of sometimes hundreds of listeners, but they're welcome to come on my uh, podcast in case I misstate any of their positions, um, because I'm going to try to do the best I can to kind of outline what their position is as to what I think are kind of the three most important questions as it pertains to the Ukraine conflict um, especially relating to the United States foreign policy and supporting militarily Ukraine. We'll also do a small detour as we have this discussion on the sportscaster, Alan Cowherd, and a segment that he does. And one of the Pentagon bureaucrats in the mid-1960s, George Ball, and his relationship to the Vietnam War as a prescient dissenter as to some of the problems that did in fact transpire as we escalated our involvement in Vietnam. Isn't that how you say it if you're like, Sergeant Dan, we're in the Vietnam War. So what are the three big topics that I think are the most important relating to U.S. policy in the Ukraine war? And I'll try to outline my friend's response and whether they kind of nudged me out of any of my positions. Because I think we all, at least I hope we all consider ourselves open-minded in the sense that if we have an opinion, we're willing to adjust the opinion based upon the facts and information that we get. So as to what I think is the most important question, which is the risk of a nuclear exchange precipitated by our active involvement in the Ukraine conflict. Now, obviously, I'm not the only person to bring this up. This has been mentioned. But for me, as I kind of sort through all of the different questions uh, as to Ukraine policy, 
To me, it's the most, most important question. And I think at the outset, I think one thing that is undeniably true is this is the first time in the history of the world in which there potentially is going to be a conflict between two, a hot conflict between two nuclear nuclear armed powers um, in the history of civilization. I don't think there's ever been that case. There was obviously the Cold War, and there were little subsidiary conflicts related to that, but this is the first time ever. So first, just sort of as an empirical matter, when we're all making projections as to this first most important point, um, we are basing it just based upon educated guesses. Even the Pentagon is basing this on educated guesses because we don't have any experience with this. It's never happened. Now, obviously, the um, Pentagon has their own projectionists, and they and Biden does have that information in terms of this policy. And you better believe that there's someone advising him and telling him, hey, you are increasing the risk of a nuclear exchange by X percent, which probably has not been disclosed to the United States people um, just because they don't want to freak them out. Um, my educated hypothesis is, is that it has significantly and materially enhanced that risk to agree that is not worth uh, the, the current support that we're engaging at this time. Now, what was my friend's response? Their response was, the risk is negligible. It might be a little bit higher, but you know, it's just not, it's not something that played into their calculation at all, um, as far as I can tell. Um, and certainly no percentage was identified. And you know, granted, this isn't the type of thing where we can you know, say, yeah, there's a, there's an information, oh, there probably is an information market out there sometimes where people bet on this stuff, but we're not going to get a precise number. And so I'm not claiming that they should have provided, yeah, there's a 0.01% chance uh, that there is, that you're increasing the risk. And one thing I was thinking about in my morning walk this morning, what if it increased the risk of a nuclear exchange to the level of like winning the reverse lottery. Like it's an astronomical risk, right? It's astronomically low, but even if we're like increasing that possibility, the level of winning the lottery, I think that is too high given what the stakes are here. And one thing I can tell you is yes, there is a need sometimes when you're doing foreign policy not to communicate all the relevant facts to the public so as to avoid unnecessary alarm and panic. So I get that. However, this is a factor that I think anyone with a brain can identify as something to think about and a risk that should be talked about and at least clearly articulated. And as far as I can tell, that, had, that message in terms of from the government has virtually not occurred. There has been no projection saying, hey, don't worry, this isn't something that's likely to occur. We have kind of a side agreement with the um, Russian government that they're not going to use nukes, they're not going to uh, deploy them, that's not going to happen. And it's going to be similar to like the types of agreements that have existed for, for example, grain um, with Ukraine. It's sold to Western Europe, there's the deal that the Russians are kind of allowing, in exchange for certain other things that we give the Russians while this conflict is occurring. That has not been communicated by the public. 
But more importantly, I think related to that risk is uh, not necessarily that the government is supposed to actually level with us and give give it to us straight, but there should be those voices in the media. Right? What is the fourth estate of our country? A free and independent and unbiased press. There's only one, and there's only a few people that have really talked about that. I think, well, frankly, Donald Trump, I'm just reporting the news. He's identified this risk, and so is Don Trump Jr. It is part of their rhetoric vis-a-vis the Ukraine war. And setting aside those two personalities, let's just say person A and person B, I mean, a, a certain former ex-president and his son, um, they are identifying that as a risk. And I, I think that's spot on because that's not only one of the questions, it's the only question. Because if we're wrong on that particular topic, and we are uh, increasing the risk by 1%, 0.01%, that is a risk that's too high where we're talking about tens of millions of people potentially being killed. Their view was, uh, my friends, and by the way, and, and what you see in the media uh, in terms of debate on this topic is that it the risk is essentially negligible. I think one of them said, well, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, if, if that's the assertion that's going to be, it's just not going to happen. Well, um, okay, but that's not good enough for me. It's just kind of a conclusory statement. It's not going to happen. That doesn't do it. You have to uh, give a little bit more than that. And I think the government has to give a little bit more of that in terms of explaining what the benefits are of uh, this conflict in terms of the support of arms in relation to securing the United States and improving the United States economy. Because those are the two questions that are most important to the United States, which is, what well, is it in our interests? We're not in the business of being an international policeman in Central Europe. We are not. We are signatories to NATO. We are treaty bound to defend those territories. We are not treaty bound to defend Ukraine. Um, we may provide them arms, but we are not treaty bound to. This is a policy choice that is occurring with virtually no debate. And to me, that is fundamentally wrong. And it shows, in my view, kind of the incompetence of a lot of the establishment uh, media that there is no debate on. I mean, prove me wrong on this. Okay, experiment. Today, members of the Rocky Cast class, go on to MSNBC or NBC News, CBS News, ABC News, NPR, even Fox News Post Tucker, Fox News Post Tucker, all the mainstream New York Times and Washington Post and identify one opinion piece that asks, what in the hell are we doing in Ukraine and why? Just articulate that for me. And are there any dissenting views? And I actually brought this up to my friend and he brought up kind of, I think could be an obvious point, which is, I think his kind of view as well. The reason why there's no debate that is, well, you're just, it's so obvious that you're wrong, Cole, that there's no reason to debate it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there are certain topics, and I agree, there are certain topics that you don't debate. You don't say like, let's listen to both sides, pro and anti-slavery. Yeah, there are some things that you just don't debate. Let's, um, you know, debate civil rights for people of color whether they should be treated equally under the law. You just don't debate that topic. So I agree, there are certain topics you do not debate. 
But I think when you're talking about the risk of a potentially catastrophic nuclear exchange, either at a Hiroshima level or even a sub-Hiroshima level, they've talked about the use of tactical battlefield nukes, which would not be essentially uh, uh, as big as Hiroshima, Hiroshima size, and then, of course, you know, potential intercontinental ballistic exchange with Russia. The thought process is, and I think this has to be the, the question that is asked for all the proponents, is the linchpin of Soviet uh, United States foreign policy during the Cold War was mutually assured destruction, which is both sides are rational and neither side is going to commit suicide by attacking the other, right? And yet... Uh, there are situations based upon battlefield exigencies. Like, let's say, for example, um, Putin finds himself where all of a sudden he somehow does get into a conventional military conflict with NATO. Uh, NATO doesn't adequately coordinate its policy and starts pushing across the Russian border. Like, assume that happens. Assume that's coupled with a domestic insurrection where Putin feels like, hey, there's nothing to lose, and these people are trying to destroy our civilization. Will you destroy our civilization? We're going to destroy your civilization. I and mean, one can easily see how that would get to that point. There are all sorts of times where actions are taken militarily that um, seem after the fact to have been insane acts of suicide, but at the time those acts are taken are considered to be reasonable gambles. Japan, why did they attack Pearl Harbor? Most of them knew that eventually they could not win a long-term war with the United States, but they made essentially an educated bet that the United States would not fight, that they would make a um, that they would not respond in the way that they did. And by the, by, by the time that they did gear up for the war, there would be this impenetrable shield that would not be able to be penetrated by United States troops. Hitler makes the same gamble when he attacked the Soviet Union. There, it's seemingly suicide. Why would you engage the Soviet Union? He, did, he didn't respect them. He thought that he thought he could win. People make these types of gambles. Similarly, that is what we are doing here, regardless of how we classify it. I used it very uh, strongly the term Russian roulette, where you, you're basically betting that the worst case scenario doesn't occur when you play this game. Now, of course, if you have a revolver, it's a one in six chance. No one's saying there's a 16% chance here. Uh, the, the question is, though, is that given the fact that this war does not pose a security threat to the U.S. or an economic threat to the U.S., does it, is it worth the gamble in, in terms of increasing the risk? And that discussion is not present in the media. That is not um, present in the um, academic institutions, as far as I can tell. And it is certainly not present in terms of Joe Biden's articulation for why we should be going to war um, potentially with Russia over the two eastern provinces of Ukraine. So my friend's view was, that's just an overblown concern. Now, I want to assure you guys, this is not something where I'm like afraid all the time. It's just like, I don't like silver, you know, quiver in my sheets. You know, just, oh, my God, are we going to get nuked? Should I start prepping? No, I, I don't. In part because, you know, I, I think it's in part because of my stoicism. Even though I've engaged in a lot of uh, more political discussions here, in part, is gonna, I feel like I kind of need to do my part. 
you, you, you kind of, you know, this isn't obviously coal isn't going to be pressing the button or cause the button to be pushed, right? Uh, so if it happens, it happens. I mean, I, I think I am kind of like, you know, it's kind of like that Farsight cartoon where two guys are fishing and there's two mushroom clouds in the in the distance and one of them goes to the other. Well, might as well keep fishing, right? Might as well enjoy our last day. You know, that's my attitude. I mean, I think it is still a relatively low risk. But even if it increases the level of the negative lottery, so what do you have the odds of winning Powerball? Let's assume it's that level of risk that we're engaging in at this point. And by the way, I think it's higher than that. I can't identify a number. So in defense of my friends, I ain't identifying a number either. So I'm not saying, oh my God, well, they haven't read this source. It turns out there's a 2% risk by the Rand Corporation. But I think it's higher than what it would be to win the Powerball of this negative lottery, which the negative lottery would be uh, an uh, exchange of nuclear weapons. I think it most likely it would happen in the battlefield context. But it has not been articulated what that risk is and whether it's worth it. So then that gets to the second issue, which I think to me is where you put your money at the, um, put your money where your mouth is. Or are the stakes here, and this is my standard in terms of whether we should support uh, the way that we have uh, arms, javelin missiles, uh, bazookas, whatever. All, all these, you know, in this case, I think in Poland, they're, they're sending MiGs over, and eventually I think they want to get the highest of high-tech items, which is what is the risk of actual boots on the ground here um, of the United States? What is the risk that men and women would actually be deployed based upon this particular policy? And again, here my and, and my friends are both willing to come on. If they want to, they can. I'd be happy to um, uh, let them come on and, and make sure that I'm not misrepresenting their position. But their response in terms of a risk of the United States being um, engaged in a conventional nuclear or not a conventional a conventional conflict let's set aside point one which is suppose coal is just totally wrong like like the risk is lowered they're somehow lowering the risk of armageddon uh in a nuclear exchange based on a policy let's go to point two well what's the risk then of just a conventional exchange in terms of tens of thousands of, of troops being committed on the battlefield here in europe um based upon the current policy their response to that was, I, and again, I can, they can come on and clarify it if I'm wrong, was, well, it, we haven't deployed them yet, but the current policy of just supplying arms is working quite well. And so that hasn't turned out to be the case. So in terms of whether we should put our money where our mouth is and actually deploy troops, they said, that's just not a concern. Uh, that hasn't happened. And uh, so far, just supplying the arms has been enough for purposes of the Ukraine. And of course, that also will require uh, Russia to, uh, to engage in reciprocal forbearance in terms of whether they may attack uh, arms shipments. So here's where I think the risk of the conventional exchange will occur. When you are engaging in a military conflict, you obviously have your battlefield tactics. You know, they often say that, you know, amateurs talk strategy and professionals um, focus on logistics, you know, your gas, your bullets, your arms, the rate at which you're burning through food, keeping your men fed. And one of the things you're looking at is not only your own logistics, but the logistics of your opponent. 
which is Russia is now engaged in a hot military conflict with Ukraine, and so far it has not spilled over into other borders. At some point, okay, the question is, how are these items being delivered to the Ukraine? Obviously through rail, truck, and presumably through ship. They may be delivering some via plane. But at some point, if, if Russia has reason to believe, and let's say they're losing uh, tons of tanks on the battlefield, and they want to try to interdict shipments of Javelin missiles that are crushing their tanks, they may decide they just they have to, or else they're going to lose the war. They have to uh, interdict a shipment of those in Ukrainian territory, uh, and that, that is being brought in through NATO troops or something along those lines. Or if it's a supply depot on the other side of the border in Poland, for example, which of course would be a cause for NATO to get involved and invoke Article 5 of the Self-Defense Treaty. That's where it's going to happen, is where they're going to interdict the shipment of arms. That is exactly one of the reasons why the United States got into the war, is that as the uh, Germans got in this stalemate with Britain and France, they realized that the Allies were supplying arms to via the Lusitania, and they attacked it because, you know, you can you can say, well, we're not engaged in war. We're, quote, unquote, just supplying arms, munitions, and coordinating battlefield tactics. We're not engaged in, in, in a hot war against you because we have no troops. But Russia comes back and says, well, okay, you're not supplying battlefield troops to the field. So we're not, you know, there's no Geneva Convention that you're out, you're doing that type of thing. But you're providing intelligence, you're, you're coordinating uh, military strikes, you're providing coordinates, you're providing training, you're, you're providing troops, ammunition, tanks, planes. You're doing everything possible to aid that particular effort. So we consider, you may not consider yourself engaged in a hot war, but we do. Now, the response to that was, is that Russia just knows that there's no way that they could win against NATO. And I think that is an accurate assessment, is that right now they do have their hands full. And one weakness of my current position is there's no question that Russia probably would have attained greater battlefield success so far without the support of the Western powers. The Western powers has led Ukraine the ability to kind of establish a de facto border and now we're seeing a World War II type uh, or Stalingrad type battle of stalemate. So that's what we've achieved so far, a stalemate in which each side is killing each other to the tune of tens of thousands of people. That's what it has achieved so far. The question is not whether they're going to declare war on all of NATO. The question is whether you could very easily see a type of miscalculation here based upon our current policy where the... Um, we have a situation like what happened in Ukraine, I'm sorry, in Poland about six months ago. And I think Tucker pointed this out, and I think this is verified in terms of reporting. Some Russian fell, uh, some Russian shells originally fell, supposedly or allegedly fell on Polish soil. And I think like one or two people died. So that was kind of the original reporting. After that reporting came out and people were thinking, okay, is this it? I mean, is this kind of where NATO gets together and says, hey, we've been attacked, we gotta declare because Poland's been attacked, they invoke Article 5, and they all gotta to get together and pursue it to the treaty, protect each other. Well, subsequent reporting 
confirmed that it was not a Russian shell. And in fact, it was Ukrainian shell, I believe like in a training exercise or something along that lines. And then the question was, did Ukraine do that to kind of goad them into the war? And I'll just leave that to, in terms of the factual accuracy of that particular incident about six months ago, I'll just kind of leave that to, you know, history in terms of factual accuracy. But the point is, is that that scenario is precisely the type of scenario in which all of a sudden we get involved in Russia in this conventional uh, exchange over essentially a very limited territorial um, expansion that Russia is attempting to secure. Wrongfully, I'm not saying it's right, but that's I view it as a regional conflict and not this clash of civilizations, which essentially the media is 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 articulating. So I think that's kind of the, the key issue is that I think that you are significantly increasing and we should be leveling with the American people that we should be looking at potentially implementing a draft or we should be looking at what how likely is it that we're going to go to war. Now one issue I brought up uh, to one of my friends was well hey there's only one power to declare war and that is Congress. And his response to that was kind of like, come on, you know, we all know that there's all these brush fire conflicts and that, you know, that, that no one actually does that. I don't, I don't think we've declared war since, uh, night. What? I'm thinking they go, we have like these military resolutions, whether that's a quote unquote declaration of war. Um, but, but congressional authority is what's needed here. And of course, in this particular case, Congress has been funding it. So it's kind of de facto, uh, they are supporting the Biden policy, both Republicans and Democrats. But that is what Article One of our Constitution is. It does give the war power uh, to Congress, I think for this very reason, because it's very easy to get involved in these kind of foreign entanglements. Now, that gets to kind of the third point, this great question of why. Uh, the three big whys are, does it benefit us economically? Does it benefit us militarily in the sense that it increases the security of the United States. And number three, is it in our moral interest to go to war over Ukraine? In other words, is there, is there a civilian aspect that just requires us to do what we're doing to protect the lives of the Ukrainians? And here, this is obviously an extraordinarily sensitive um, topic. Um, one of the things that my friend had brought up was that he believed that there could be some ethnic cleansing, some, you know, these sorts of things that was happening in uh, uh, you, the eastern provinces of Ukraine, atrocities have been claimed. And the only thing I would say to that, I don't have some sort of factual rejoinder that kind of is a trump card to that concern. So I am in no way suggesting that that particular concern, which is there's basically ethnic cleansing occurring in the eastern Ukraine by the Ukrainians. This is, or I'm sorry, I misspoke. The Russians are doing this for Ukrainian citizens in those regions and potentially going to exterminate the rest of the country. That's kind of the claim that's given. Um, so I won't do a factual rejoinder, but I will essentially identify just a couple of things that I haven't seen. And I freely consider that this could be just my own agreement. So that this may be Cole just doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But I have not seen reporting along the lines of a Srebrenica of Serbia and Kosovo 
or Bosnia in, in the 90s. I have not seen that reporting, you know, in terms of people standing in concentration camps. I have not seen that, number one. Number two, uh, the only other response I would give to that is, uh, as far as I can tell, Israel is currently neutral in this conflict. That is, they have not placed their thumb on the scale of the conflict. Now, why is that relevant? Well, obviously, we all know what happened during World War II with the Jews. I don't know if they have any stated foreign policy. I think right now it's just trying to preserve the Jewish state. But I have not even seen any moral claims that what's going on in this conflict reaches similar concerns related to that. I don't think we've ever seen something as bad as the Holocaust, but I have not seen that. Uh, now, obviously, have there been atrocities? 100%. Uh, I'm not claiming that, but keep in mind that that's true in virtually every armed conflict. And if you want to look at civilian death counts, I mean, it's just an unfortunate, horrible part of war. And frankly, one of the reasons why I think there's going to be less civilians killed if there were more military success. Um, I mean, I think Russia's like, hey, we do view this as an existential threat. And um, there are more civilians that have been killed by virtue of the stalemate that has been created and engaged and allowed Ukraine to kind of have this more provocative posture than it otherwise would. The only thing I would respond to that in terms of ethnic concern, of course, and the civilians, of course, is a huge issue is that in World War II, and I just learned this actually this morning, it was as quoted by um, Victor Davis Hanson, one of the great World War II historians, that in World War II, there were 60 million deaths, more than any other conflict in human history. Of those deaths, 80% of those deaths were civilian. And a lot of you may say, well, you know, we had Nazis, and we had, you know, Tojo over in Japan, and we had the fascist Italians, and so, and of course, we had Stalin. So that kind of explains that. But if you look at the civilian body count for the United States, which we like to think of ourselves as the good guys, the Nuremberg, um, not the Nuremberg, but essentially the the World War II bombing strategy in the European cities, I, there were huge amounts of civilian deaths. And then in terms of Japan, uh, Curtis LeMay, prior to the time that we dropped the bombs. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the bombing strategy employed by the United States would be considered a war crime today. Well, essentially, you're using incendiary napalm in civilian areas. So I'm not saying that justifies whatever's going on in there. I've not done a deep dive on that. But, you know, again, this is an unfortunate issue of, well, I mean, and if the civilians, if that's why we're going there, because of the civilian and the moral component to it, uh, then I think we need to say, okay, well, is that our foreign policy? We we go to nation states where that's occurring either on a macro. We, we certainly did not do it in Rwanda, as far as I can tell. Uh, we kind of did a humanitarian component in Somalia, but it, that wasn't, we've kind of let that kind of blossom. We certainly did do that to take the people that we swore to protect in Afghanistan, uh, to protect the people that had given allegiance to the United States and said we just left them there. And, you know, again, I'm not commenting on this. I think this is just facts. So if it's good for Ukraine, certainly should be good for Afghanistan in terms of the people that agreed to help us. Instead, we just left most of them behind. So that argument, I think, certainly is a good one, but it is something that uh, is is certainly persuasive. I think it's morally compelling. But I don't think that's worth the risk of increasing the risk of nuclear exchange, number one, nor do I think it's worth it 
um, you know, being like the Spanish Civil War where you go volunteer to fight. And because to me, that's kind of the standard. Um, I'm not saying we all have to like, you know, put our war britches on and go fight. But I do kind of believe that. I think there are certain things where it's like, hey, the Civil War was civilians that like got on board. World War II, people enlisted to protect the United States. I don't see even remotely clear uh, the, the benefit here. Now, in terms of kind of looking at historical precedent, uh, there's really, I think, only two relevant precedents that we've kind of in this in this kind of U- Ukraine. So I so so in summary, I just don't think that was really met there. There's really only two really key, I think, examples that to me are most relevant as you look at previous precedent. You know, my day job as a lawyer, and essentially, there's a gazillion cases out there, and you kind of got to pick what you think in terms of the current factual scenario is most relevant historical case to guide your decision-making and your strategy in the current case. And the two things that jump out at me uh, as the most relevant is on the proponents of the war, and I think even Victor Davis Hanson has kind of outlined this as well, that this is really analogous to the lead-up to World War II, which is Hitler became aggressive because the Allies had lost their ability to deter is that he thought they were bluffing all along and that uh, that they would not go to war to protect Poland. That was essentially his bet. And if they did, he would essentially kick their ass. That was kind of his gamble. And so now in the Ukraine, that is kind of the argument. I mean, that if if Putin takes over Estonia, and I, and I think probably what he would do would be similar to the way that it is in Belarus, which is, Belarus has exercised some independence here. I mean, they're not just a total satellite of of Russia, but they're very closely allied. And, you know, it would be interesting to say, like, if you had to to choose between, you know, living in um, Belarus with no war and Ukraine with war, like, what would you choose? I don't know. I'd have to leave that to Ukrainians. But that's probably the example that the the argument that's used is Munich. And as I've said in previous podcasts, I just don't see that as as the um, precedent that is really, I think, accurate because one, it's based upon, I think, hypotheticals that are not present here. Because if you look at Russia's actual deployment of troops and the focus militarily, it's all been on securing these eastern provinces in Ukraine. Um, Donetsk and Luhansk after they kind of realized that it wouldn't be a cakewalk. That's what they've done. And yes, people like Peter Zion talk about their great fears that they have in terms of plugging the gaps in the West and these sorts of things. But that's kind of what they've actually done. And they have not, and you look at their behavior over the last 35 years, yeah, they've had some regional, you know, little interventions in Georgia and they're obviously intervening here. But again, if you look at these interventions and you line it up against the numbers of the United States interventions, they're certainly probably far less. I mean, I can probably just off the top of my head name probably 25 American interventions in the Americas. And as I remind you from my previous episode, the whole linchpin of kind of high school foreign policy lesson is the Monroe Doctrine, which is the United States is saying to all foreign powers, get the hell out of the North and South America. That's our business. Is that fair? Is that outdated? Yeah, it probably is outdated, but but these are still great powers. 
And great powers don't like interference close to home. It makes them nervous. And this notion that Russia's just kind of making up this nervousness. Oh, well, you would never. That's just, that's a total pretext. And yet they lost 27 million people in World War II. And their revolution occurred where the Bolsheviks got in charge during World War I. And during Napoleon, they made it to the, the gates of Moscow, leading to one of the great symphonies of all time, the War of 1812 Overture. Uh, I believe it was by Beethoven. Uh, but yeah, so, oh, but, but those three history lessons are totally irrelevant. And yet, so they dismiss these and yet place so much weight on the, on the history lesson from uh, Munich. It's like, well, if you're going to rely on World War II as precedent, well, let's look at that. I mean, it was hostile. And people would say, oh, well, we would never do that again in the future. We would never attack in the way that Hitler attacked Russia. We just wouldn't do that. Well, uh, if Russia is looking at its response, it would say, okay, first of all, no one would have thought in 1931 that Germany, I'd be curious to see if you were to look at the best experts in the world in 1931, how many of them predicted that within 10 years during the Barbarossa campaign of June of 1942, that Russia would be attacking the Soviet Union. How many would have made that prediction? You had the most advanced, one of the most advanced economies in Western Europe, and even during the Depression. And at the time, it was a pure democracy. It was kind of on the rise, but kind of an out-of-power crackpot at the time. How many of them made that prediction? How many of them predicted when, obviously, the, the, the Kaiser didn't predict when he got, not the Kaiser, but the Tsar didn't predict that he, he would be shot along with his family. I think it was Nicholas II. Was that Nicholas II in World War I? when he decided he would help uh, defeat the Axis powers on the Eastern Front. Uh, yeah, yeah, so he certainly didn't make that prediction. He was obviously had some of the top scholars and intellects in Russia at the time. The point is, is this is unpredictable. And it certainly is not a risk that the United States would, would tolerate. I mean, so for example, we just finished a 20-year war in the Taliban. If, if the Taliban established a military base with with essentially launch pads in, let's say, Nueva Laredo, Texas. Uh, do you think the United States might do something with that? Uh, I think they would. And I remind you, what was one of the reasons why Grenada outlined uh, was attacked? One of it was you know, Soviet expansionism, but it's for air bases. These islands, even really small ones, serve as air bases, which are incredibly important strategically. And so clearly, Ukraine was on a path to NATO membership, and supposedly they are going to get a NATO membership. Now, I don't know. We're still trying to get in that. And NATO's saying, yeah. So, friends, we are really close to a hot war because NATO, if they're attacked by Russia, and if Ukraine's part of it, we're in a hot war. We got to defend them. We got to deploy troops. And there's no conversation, there's no, there's no, there's no peace sticks in the streets debating this topic. So to me, that Munich scenario is 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 not the most relevant precedent. The most pre relevant precedent is Vietnam, and of course, militarily, there's a lot of reasons why it's different. In the sense that, yes, militarily, UK and Russia is more like World War II in terms of the tanks and the, the method of warfare. Warfare, it's more conventional 
you know, you don't have tunnels with, you know, Viet Cong hiding and, you know, pogo sticks and, and bamboo booby traps and things like that. So you, you don't have that piece of it. So obviously militarily, Ukraine, Russia is more like World War II in the sense that it's kind of this conventional conflict, at least so far. But where I think Vietnam is very relevant is a lot of the arguments that my friend was using in terms of aggression, defending against aggression, which is what, how we portrayed Ho Chi Minh, that too, South Vietnam was a functioning democracy, even though it really wasn't. It was kind of a democracy only on paper. And number three, it was the Department. That was you, because a lot of those policy decision makers in the 60s had experienced the 30s. So I think for the proponents of this, oh, we're gonna, this is gonna be Munich 2.0 really do have to look at what happened in Vietnam because they also relied on that as precedent. I think that is the other similarity with Ukraine is that, okay, well, why should South Vietnam be defended by the United States? The response to that is, is they are our ally. And if we don't defeat them there, we could be see the Philippines fall to communism, which could affect ability of a hostile power to attack Taiwan. Taiwan then could be a strategic military base for China, communist China. And at the time, communism, even though kind of the academics knew that there was kind of some variations and in internal tensions between China and the Soviet Union, North Korea, at the time, the sales pitch to the public was communism. And it's just this kind of this progression from Moscow to Beijing to Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi. And yet we all know that after the conflict ended, that all the great fears that occurred didn't happen. And in fact, 20 years later in the mid-90s, we're kind of like, Vietnam, you're kind of a stable state where you got some a strong military, but you're pretty rational. You got a good educational system. Maybe we should start trading with you. Uh, the other interesting anecdote for that now is that, ironically, Vietnam, some of the companies that are concerned with war with with with, with China, are now supplying, our, <laughs> my friend had a friend who was going to relocate to Vietnam because it's kind of a stable area uh, as far as that goes, because they, they value stability. And that was, in essence, really what a national war was. So related to Vietnam, this gets us into George Ball. And George Ball, I think, is someone who's important to remember. And I'll probably do a subsequent podcast on this because I think George Ball, everyone needs a George Ball in their life. Everyone needs a George Ball um, in any kind of decision-making circle. Everyone needs a George Ball. Well, who the hell was George Ball? George Ball was the guy that was working internally in the Pentagon who was advising, along with several others, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in the post-Gulf of Tonkin era, which at least what was articulated to the American people that this sort of exchange of battleships kind of occurred off the North Vietnamese coast. And so the question is, what would the United States response be? How should we respond? And prior to that time, there was kind of some special advisors. There were no boots on the ground. They were just supplying some guns, bullets, some howitzers, some military equipment to South Vietnam, but there were no boots on the ground at that point, or at least not in large enough numbers for the public really to care about it. And so LBJ convened this policy uh, of 
getting advice from people. And LBJ was not usually someone who liked dissenting voices. And he famously pretty much locked out Hubert Humphrey because Hubert Humphrey had the audacity to exercise his opinion. But George Ball, evidently because of his position or because he just felt it was so important to do it, wrote a very coherent memo that essentially outlined, and he presented it to Lyndon Baines Johnson. And so, so he convened all these great people, like I think Dean Acheson was still there, George McNamara, all the Pentagon brass, and they're doing this sort of roundtable. And there was really one dissenting voice, and that was George Ball. And his view was not that there aren't some reasons to support South Vietnam. Of course there were. Uh, there were some reasons to support it. We had a treaty obligation with it. They did want stability in South Vietnam. They did not want these other areas to go and become communists and antithetical to the United States interests. There were some reasons. But George Ball's central point was, was that the war was unwinnable, that it had to be won on the political realm, and it could not be won on the battlefield. And and it basically outlined everything that ultimately happened, that no matter how strong we were militarily, we could not win militarily in Vietnam. It had to be a political settlement. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's not possible to win militarily in Ukraine, right? So I'm not necessarily saying that the, the policy position points that George Ball articulated are precisely the same ones that apply here in the Ukraine, but that we, the people, need people like A. Tucker Carlson. The media, legacy media, needs to do its job of raising questions that should be answered. Uh, media people, when they're asking uh, the the White House spokesman, um, I think it's John Pierre, questions, needs to, this needs to be more part of the public consciousness because this is a big issue. There needs to be a George Ball. There needs to be a well-educated person that is raising these questions for the public so that they can make up their own mind. Now, a lot of you may be saying, and, and so it turns out that had we listened to George Ball, it's hard to say what would have happened. It really is. So he would have said, hey, you know what? We can't win. Let them go. Um, you know, let we maybe we can help South Vietnam defend itself. But we could have avoided all those lives lost, all the military treasure, all the social disruption in the United States. And South Vietnam would have fallen anyway, except it would have done it 10 years earlier. It's always hard to say those sort of counter, um, you know, hypotheticals, because that isn't what ended up happening. But there are a lot of instances where, because we're, we all are basically a bunch of monkeys, all of us, you listening to it, me, I'm a monkey, we descended from monkeys. Our desire to belong to the group is so powerful. And I see this as a lawyer in jury selection, that even if you have an opinion and you may be right, because you don't want to be excluded from the group, you may sublimate that opinion to belong or to not being ostracized because George Ball was kind of ostracized after this happened. And that does happen where you have whistleblowers. They get ostracized. Think of this IRS agent. He could lose his job that's, that's speaking out against George um, uh, President Joe Biden uh, based upon special treatment for his son Hunter and the IRS. It's not pleasant to be a dissenting voice. I've been there. So this is something where I think this is, uh, we need a George Ball, we need the dissenting opinions. And so I'm not going to spend all my time making this essentially the Ukraine war podcast, but I'm just not seeing these things uh, raised. And I do not have a lot of trust in the experts. Um, I am going to do at some point a um, 
separate uh, podcast on the value of experts about whether they're able to make more accurate predictions than um, educated members or even uneducated members of the public. I don't think they necessarily are in a lot of cases. And again, I go back to Vietnam. What was really the proximate cause of the end of the war? It was public pressure. It was the public saying, what in the hell are we doing there? It was public pressure. And that does matter. What led to the collapse of the Eastern Bloc? It was people out in the streets peacefully protesting. So if you look at the movements that have occurred throughout history, whether it's a storming of the Bastille in, in France or whether it's uh, the end of the Cold War, it came about as a result of not top down, but bottom up. It was members of the public raising questions. Vaclav Havel was just a playwright and started saying, why? Why are we doing this? And that is, I think, very important as just an intellectual framework. And that gets me to, in conclusion, one of my favorite podcasters, um, Colin Cowherd, very popular, super popular. But one of my favorite segments of Colin is a segment where he says where Colin was right and where Colin was wrong. Now, I am going to toot my own horn here a little bit. You know how we all kind of think we're above average, right? We all, 80% of us think we're above average drivers. And obviously that, that can't be true, right? Some of us actually suck, but think we're good drivers. But I think I'm actually pretty good at this. So tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm, my, my adherence to my Ukraine policy is a demonstration that I'm wrong on that. But Colin does a segment where he affirms accurate predictions that he's made in the past and he owns up to mistakes that he's made that turned out to be wrong. He calls it where Colin was right and where Colin was wrong. And as a result of that, I freaking trust him as a broadcaster because he's willing to own up on mistakes that he's made in terms of unfairly analyzing a particular player. So I'll give you an example just in the context of quarterbacks. He identified um, Baker Mayfield as not necessarily a bust, but not worthy of the top overall pick in 2018 because of character issues. Well, his prediction turned out to be nearly perfectly what actually happened. Baker wasn't talented enough to be a total jerk, and he was essentially totally... Um, totally nearly destroyed the, the Cleveland Browns franchise. That's especially going to be true if this new experiment of the $230 million contract is going to work with this new player. And I forget, I'm going to, I got to get his name. John Watson. But on the other hand, where he's gotten it wrong. I mean, so for example, um, the way he used to view wide receivers, he said he used to kind of view them as kind of sugar on top. Uh, but as the league has transitioned, they clearly are more than sugar on top. They're more important than interior linemen and run a running game and a sound defense. He said, hey, that was a position I held about 50, about 10 years ago. The league's different now. I was wrong on that. And I've been wrong. Uh, I think he was wrong. I think I saw an old YouTube where he had predicted Lamar Jackson was, should be a second or third round prospect. He was obviously wrong on that. The point is he owns up to it. And for whatever reason, that's enormously difficult for we human beings to do, where we own up to the mistakes that we've made. Most famously, it was done um, post-Cuban Missile Crisis, where uh, or post-Bay of Pigs, where JFK admitted, I think he was the one that said that uh, victory has a thousand fathers where defeat is an or orphan. And here I'm willing to acknowledge that I made a mistake in the Bay of Pigs and the responsibility is mine and no one else's. And as a result of that, people began to trust him. 
Ronald Reagan did the same thing during the Iran-Contra affair, where originally he had said that there were not arms for hostages. When subsequent uh, information came out to the contrary, he said, my heart believed it, but the facts have proven otherwise, and I'm here to own up to that particular mistake. I don't see that with Biden. I don't see that in terms of what's projected. And there are times where polemics are necessary. I mean, I suppose if we get in a hot war with Russia, um, eventually voices like mine will probably be silenced. There will probably be, they will not allow that. I mean, that's what happened in World War I. Uh, Woodrow Wilson shut down dissenting voices. There was a ton of censorship. Now there's exigency of actual conflict. Yeah, you, that, that, that does happen, but we're not there yet. And so I think our leaders, I admire leaders who can say, yeah, I was wrong on that particular policy. I was right on this particular policy, but I've adjusted. That's not flip-flopping. That's being a thinking, educated person that identifies uh, new ideas based upon the facts that evolve. So we need a Colin Cowherd out there that can admit where he's right and where he's wrong. And finally, it just needs to be clearly articulated. So. It was a good conversation with my friend. I think we had a good, uh, I would say, in terms of where did I move on the needle a little bit? Um, I, I suppose I moved a little bit. I, their, their view seemed to be that the risk of a nuclear exchange was was virtually no more nor less than it is currently right now. And the extent that there is any increase of risk of you, uh, nukes being used, that was far outweighed by essentially the morals that were at stake. And that essentially that I think they I think they do kind of view that if we don't stop Putin here, he is going to be at the gates of Berlin. And of course, that is we're both projecting into the future. So no one can kind of say, I gotcha, I'm wrong or I'm right. But it does strike me that we are playing a type of gambling that is not worth what we're really getting out of this. And these are the types, precisely the type of decisions that empires make that lead to interior deterioration of the state itself. That is, they focus on external enemies while ignoring the barbarians at the gate. And that is how civilizations fall. We don't have the funds to protect the border, but we do have $100 billion to go to Ukraine. We don't have funds to repair inner city schools, but we have $100 billion to send to Ukraine. The list goes on and on. That is the nature of policy choices. What you spend money on one thing, you spend it on another. And when you aren't actually making those decisions and you're just printing money, then you got inflation, which is causing a lot of problems in terms of the collapse of the banking system. You might link in the inflation that we have right now to uh, Ukraine policy. No, not yet. But Biden's don't, they don't understand choices. And it's true, federal government is not like the family budget when we, we make choices. The government does have the right to print money. But it does have it does have to do it judiciously, and if it's done not judiciously or recklessly, you have inflation, which can be very harmful to productivity, work, savings, and investment—all virtuous activities that we believe that we should be doing. So it's a wonderful discussion. I remain good friends with my friend, and I think we need to do that as a culture. Um, I hate to bring up uh, Richard Nixon, but you know I think there is this great silent majority that you know they're they're busy making money working on their families, working on their yards, working on the things that they can control. And um, and, I, and I am going to do that. I just, the reason why I've sort of detoured in this Ukraine issue is that I just don't see the, you, the debate here. And I think it does need to occur. And especially with voices like Tucker, often, I'm not saying I'm Tucker Carlson, 
but we need to have these conversations. So that is my position on Ukraine. Uh, I think in terms of the why question, oh, one little thing to it. Uh, in terms of the why question, uh, yeah, I suppose there's if 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 it turns out there's Srebrenica type activity, yeah. But that means if that's the case, then there's no reason to hide that from the public. So in terms of the atrocities, that needs to be front and center uh, of New York Times every day. And I'm not I'm not seeing that. Yes, there have been atrocities, but I think virtually everywhere you have atrocities, you know, my life, Vietnam, Hiroshima. I mean, so the United States has had their own atrocities, World War One, when the when the Kaiser attacked uh, Belgium and those sorts of things. So yeah, I, I that would be something that may may sort of swing my needle uh, as far as that goes, if there is actual ethnic cleansing occur in those provinces. The risk of American troops, I'm not convinced their argument that oh, it's just not going to happen. Why? Because it happened. It hasn't happened so far. Well, that um, is somewhat of an argument. I, I suppose that argument will become more powerful the more that remains the case. So the longer and longer no accidental shells fall on NATO territory or intentional shells, the more and more likely that point of view is probably a stronger view. But, you know, it's kind of, and I know this person is a student of philosophy as well, the, the fact that you've had something happen this way for X number of years does not mean that the thing that you fear won't happen. Um, you know, Nicholas Talib referred to this as the black swan, large predictable events that happen infrequently, but they happen more frequently than what the bell curve statistical models suggest. So it was a great discussion. I remain good friends with these people. I have an enormous amount of respect for all of them. I, any of them are, are welcome uh, to come on my show in case I have misstated any of their positions because I certainly do not want to do that. But it is a conversation I think we should all continue to have because we have not engaged in a hot war with a nuclear armed power in the history of all civilization. And I do think it's something that should be explored in all venues. So that's it for the Rocky cast. Continue to give me positive reviews. Share it with your friends. Share it with your enemies. Share it with your mom, your dad, your sister, your wife, your, uh, your kids. Probably not. They probably won't be too interested. But if they're interested in world history, they, they might. I'll do, some, I'll do some stuff on parenting, too, and sibling dynamics. But who the hell knows? There'll be all sorts of different topics. Whatever I find is interesting. You tune in to listen to Rocky Cole. If you don't like him, you're probably not going to like this damn show. So that's it for the Rocky cast. And tell friends we meet again on the next episode of the Rocky cast.